Well, today, we're going to be talking about the fall of man, about the arrival of sin into the world. And all of us who are parents have probably had that experience of watching our little ones demonstrate their fallenness for the first time, flexing their independence muscles and just being flat-out defiant. But I want to roll this back into the more deeply personal as we get started today. Do you remember the time when your own fallenness, your own sinfulness, your own built-in defiance against God, your own innate tendency to reject good and to choose evil, when that became disturbingly self-evident to you? I do. I do. It was the mid-90s. I was in high school. My parents were heading out of town for an overnight trip somewhere. I was a self-absorbed teenager, so I didn't know or care where they were going, just that they were going. My assignment was to come home on a Friday night after hanging out with my friends, presumably by some arbitrary curfew, midnight or, or whatever it was, and I was supposed to call my grandmother when I got home to confirm that I was home and going to bed. I had a different idea. My group of friends were going to have a Star Wars movie marathon. We were going to watch all of the Star Wars movies, of which there were three at the time, back to back to back. This was long before Netflix or Disney+, Plus. so my buddy who was hosting this shindig, we'll call him Dave, primarily because his name was Dave. So Dave had proactively rented all three VHS tapes from Blockbuster. And here was the thing, I didn't want to ask my folks if I could stay out past midnight to watch all three movies because they might have said no. So I hatched a better plan. I would simply look for a break in the action between movies, call my grandmother from Dave's house, this was before cell phones, even before caller ID, and I would tell her that I was at home. And then I'd head home hours later after the end of the movie marathon. Bingo, bongo, bongo. It's no big deal, right? What could possibly go wrong? And my plan seemed to work just fine. We watched all three movies, played a few games of pool while the tapes were rewinding. Kids, ask your parents about rewinding. And I went home, and it was pretty benign. If you're thinking that there must have been something more sinister at play, sorry, this isn't a terribly exotic high school party story. Embarrassing, but not exotic. I was generally a pretty tame kid at this cinematic journey to Tatooine and beyond. There were no drugs, no alcohol that I remember. That wasn't really my scene at all. So I was probably chugging a half gallon of Turkey Hill chocolate milk, pounding some yodels. We were just watching some classic sci-fi films. But when I opened the garage door at my house at 3 a.m., my parents' car was in the garage. This was not good. And when I walked into the house, my parents were sitting in the family room waiting for my return. This was not good. And I came to discover that their plans had changed. They had come home early. They had obviously noticed my absence. They had called my grandmother. They had confirmed that I had told her that I was home. They told her that I was not home. And she proceeded to burst into tears under the assumption that I had probably been kidnapped, beaten, and killed by the nefarious drug lords of Western Lancaster County. <laughs> this was not good. So to recap, I lied to my sweet grandmother so that I could watch seven hours of science fiction movies, which I might have even been able to watch if I had simply asked, which resulted in my sweet grandmother descending into a sobbing mess of fear 
and paranoia for my well-being. I remember vividly afterwards having called my grandmother and assured her that I was, assured her that I was okay and apologized for lying. And after trying to explain to my parents why I did such a stupid and hurtful and ridiculous thing, I remember some, some simple self-reflection, thinking to myself, Chad, what is wrong with you? Why would you do something so idiotic and selfish? I don't remember what I told myself at the time. I don't know how I answered that question, but over the intervening years, I have an answer now. It's Genesis 3. It's that moment in history commonly known as the fall of man or the fall of Adam or often just the fall. Pastor Aaron mentioned last week the overarching framework for the entire story of Scripture, the entire story of humanity, the the entire story of history. It's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Last, Last week we began, well, in the beginning... If you're journeying with us in our Bible reading plan, you hopefully read Genesis 1 and 2 this week. If you want to jump on board, grab a bookmark at the Info Center on your way out today and chip-chop. You'll catch up quickly. We've, we've barely started. When we heard last, what, we, what we heard last week and what we read in, in Genesis 1 and 2 was a story of creation when all things were spoken into order. How beautiful. And then that beautiful, glorious, wondrous order was broken into chaos. And that chaos is a chaos that we feel every day all around us and within us. Why? Well, feel free to turn to Genesis 3 in your Bible uh, or on your smartphone today, or you can read along on the screen. We'll be reading about the fall, starting in Genesis 3, verse 1. A long passage. So let's jump in. Again, verse 1 in Genesis 3. Here's what we read. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, "'Where are you?' He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. 
For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So let's be honest about what we're going to consider together over the remainder of this message. Let's talk about sin, baby. Let's talk about you and me. We're talking about sin and brokenness, disruption of the created order. Yes, chaos that broke into the created order, chaos that has never gone away. And I think we do well to spend some time today considering what ideas, big ideas, we have about the fall, about sin, globally and broadly, and then, very personally. Over these minutes, I'm going to toss around some theological ideas for your reflection. Because our ideas, what we think about God and about humanity and about sin and about ourselves, well, that directly shapes our lives. Shapes how we live, how we love, how we suffer, how we hope. It's all impacted by the events we've just read in Genesis 3 and by what we think about those events. So again, starting very broadly, let's begin our reflections on the fall in the context of human history. I'll suggest that thinking rightly about the fall allows us to place ourselves rightly within the full scope of human history. In this sense, the fall offers us chronological realism. Now, if the phrase chronological realism doesn't mean anything to you, that's okay because I made it up. To make sense of it, let me refer to another phrase that somebody else much smarter than I am made up. It's a brilliant concept introduced in the last century by Owen Barfield and made famous by his friend and, and my friend C.S. Lewis. Admittedly, my friendship with Lewis is a, it's very one-directional, what with his being dead long before I was born, but we're close nonetheless, just trust me. Here's Barfield's phrase, which Lewis used, chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is the notion that we, at any given time, are in an inherently advanced age and that all ideas that are old are by definition antiquated and fundamentally inferior. Chronological snobbery presumes that the historical trajectory is towards the better, always towards the better, allowing the chronological snob to puff out his chest and mock those unrefined, barbaric ancestors who were such simpletons, had such undeveloped views about anything and everything. And some of us may be prone to chronological snobbery. Others may scoff at this way of thinking, but see, there's another side of, the, of this coin. The equal and opposite error of chronological snobbery is chronological anxiety. Chronological anxiety, another term that I made up, is the notion that now the present, our current reality, is the absolute bottom of the barrel. Chronological anxiety marinates in the juices of judgmentalism and self-righteousness. Looking at the world around us and pointing out every foible and flaw is yet another indication that the wheels of society are completely falling off. Chronological anxiety points to some mythical time in ages past when things were, were pretty well in tip-top shape and pines for that lost era when everything seemed to be going pretty great for pretty much everyone. Oh, if we could just get back to the good old days, whenever that might have been. And as I've pondered these twin errors of chronological anxiety, longing for the good old days when all was right with the world, and chronological snobbery of thinking that now happens to be the best era that has ever been, you know what I found to be a good corrective measure to these ways of thinking? History. Actual, real history. I've read more books about history over the past three years than I have in the previous three decades. And it's so enlightening to read from actual historians, students of history, not from ideologically driven talking heads trying to justify their pre-existing opinions, but from scholars who do the hard work of studying primary sources. It is so enlightening to read about what has come before us to help us make sense of our current reality. 
Let me give you one example. Handel's Messiah, one of the most profoundly beautiful works of God-exalting music written over the past several centuries. Handel's Messiah has become a staple in holiday celebrations and sacred worship experiences. Many of the particular movements within the Messiah are familiar to many of us, none more so than the Hallelujah Chorus, sung in churches throughout the world, especially during the Advent season and, and during the celebration of the Easter season, with such a glorious and spectacular focus on the life and work of Jesus. Using words of scripture from the book of Revelation, many of us know those well-known lyrics, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, king of kings and lord of lords, hallelujah. Thank you, if it's okay, I'll just go ahead and I'll just, I'll sing it for you quickly. No, I'm not going to do that. Come on. <laughs> of course not. But do you know how Handel's masterpiece was received by the church in his day? With, with deep gratitude and affection for this masterful intersection of scriptural language and these beautiful musical sounds which church leaders were so grateful to use to lift the eyes and the hearts and the minds of their people to praise and worship God together in song. Right? No. Not at all. Handel's Messiah was rejected by church leaders for decades as worldly and ostentatious and, and disrespectful and irreverent. This is just one of those moments in history where we look at one generation interacting with the next generation in a spirit of confusion and condemnation and, and, and not being able to sort out right from wrong and good from bad and being able to evaluate these things relative to each other. Here's the point. Every single generation of believers includes those with a tendency towards the more traditional conservative way of thought who are inclined to look at new and different things in the surrounding world and, and conclude that the world is probably as awful as it's ever been and it's only getting worse. That's chronological anxiety. It's not helpful. It's bad history and it's bad theology. Correspondingly, every single generation of believers includes those with a tendency towards the more progressive, free-spirited way of thought, who are inclined to look at the old ways as stodgy and wooden and worthy of dismissal and even mockery. That's chronological snobbery. It's not helpful. It's bad history, and it's bad theology. So what is helpful? What is sound biblical theology? Well, let's go back to the fall. Genesis 3 is incredibly instructive here. A right understanding of the fall of humanity and its implications provides for us an alternative to these two unhelpful views. Again, chronological realism. Chronological realism looks at the world, us, the world around us and admits, wow, this is a mess. I'm a mess, you're a mess, they're a mess. We are a mess. It's ugly, it's painful, yuck. That is true and it is timeless. It has literally always been that way since Genesis 3. So we would be fools to be cocky enough to think that we're the ones, the generation, who will finally get things right. Or maybe even we've already gotten it right. And we would be fools to think that whoever we think is steering the ship of the culture around us, the elites or the generation after us, or whoever we want to point the finger to and blame, that they are the ones who will, will finally get it completely and irredeemably wrong. That's not the biblical view, neither. A sound theology of the sinfulness of humanity, which began in Genesis 3, assumes that the occupants of this earth have been and will always be sinful 
broken, messed up people because Adam and Eve sinned and their sin nature was passed along to every subsequent generation, a part of the human experience forever thereafter until the ultimate final and permanent redemption and restoration of Christ is completed at the end of history. We live in the already, but not yet. Already, Christ has come to begin his restorative work. But not yet, Christ has not yet returned to complete his restorative work. And in that reality of the already, but not yet, we need not fear that everything is somehow spiraling out of control, chronological anxiety. But we need not be arrogant enough to think that we'll get it all figured out, chronological snobbery. Throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, there's an ongoing series of prophets, individuals who God sends to his people to speak on his behalf. Do you know what message you never hear from a prophet? Hey, good news, you're all doing a pretty great job. All is well, two thumbs up, keep up the good work. Because that has never been true. Not at some prior time, way back when, and not now. Because of Genesis 3, because of the fall. The chaos of Genesis 3 that broke into the order of Genesis 1 and 2 was the ongoing reality of humanity, a reality in which we live. Here's what biblical scholar Alan Ross says in his commentary on Genesis. As long as sinful life exists, all of this evil consequence will continue, for all of it will be repeated. The original sin of Adam and Eve brought into the race the conflict between good and evil with the consequent painful toil, hardship, alienation, and death. Every act of disobedience perpetuates the same effects. Life as it was for Israel or as it is today is not the way God created it. There was a break in the continuity from creation to the present condition. This passage explains why men and women labor in toil and agony and conflict all their days and why they die. Sin has wrought this dilemma and nothing short of the removal of sin will end it. So we can be chronological realists, rejecting chronological snobbery and chronological anxiety, simply acknowledging that which is and always has been since the excruciating day in the Garden of Eden when God's created order was disrupted, a, a disruption for the rest of human history until that culminating redemptive and restorative work of Christ makes all things right. So having spoken now on a, on a very broad level, let me bring things down to the more individual level. The fall helps us avoid heroic shock syndrome. It is hard to be an evangelical over the last 5, 10, 20, even 50 years without taking notice of the litany of key influential leaders within the evangelical world who have lost their voices of influence, their esteem, their respectability, and their ministries through very public falls of disgrace. My own personal list of spiritual mentors and ministry heroes is filling up with fallen leaders. One, an influential voice in my early adult years, speaking wisdom about love and relationships has walked away from the faith. Another, the single most influential voice in my views of church leadership, mired in scandal that led to his dismissal from public ministry. Yet another, the, the single most influential voice in my intellectual framework of how to think about the faith brought down at the end of his life and shortly after his death amidst terrible sins of abuse and deception. And the hits just keep on coming. Another one bites the dust. And another one gone. And another one gone. Another one bites the dust. I suspect that many of us, probably even most of us, have at least one or two of those stories 
from our own life of someone we once held in the highest regard who turned out to be a broken, messy sinner. Now, what should we make of all of this? How should we respond? Well, I'm suggesting that the doctrine of the fall should inform how we respond. It seems to me that if we rightly understand the implications of the fall as wrought upon humanity in Genesis 3, that we should never, ever be shocked when anyone, when any human being, when any descendant of Adam and Eve, we should never be shocked when anyone falls. The consequence of the fall was that this reality became universal. No one, no matter how smart or spiritual or seemingly special, is excluded. In fact, when my initial reaction to the public fall of famous Christians is one of shock and surprise, it's a good indication that my theology, my understanding of the fall, is probably at least a bit askew. Might we be saddened, disappointed, heartbroken? Yes, yes, but shocked? As if I thought we were talking about someone who managed to live outside the scope of the fall? Well, no. no I don't think so. Sin, sin should never shock us. In fact, a right view of the fall should help us redirect our highest admiration. Only God, the only holy and righteous and pure one, is worthy of true admiration. The rest of us are all a ragtag bunch of failures, stumbling along the way in the lineage of our first earthly father and mother, Adam and Eve. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that sin shouldn't sadden us. Indeed, it should break our hearts. It breaks the heart of God, and it damages people. In fact, when we think about whatever Christian leader has most disappointed us, it's almost always true that there's a trail of wounded victims along the way. This leads to the next observation we can make about the fall from Genesis 3. The fall affirms the consequences of sin. As we've been contemplating the the universality and the timelessness of broken societies and dysfunctional cultures and destructive people, every nation and every tribe throughout all time, all people, famous or not, influential or not, leaders or not, some of you may have been wondering if I'm minimizing the significance of sin. No, no, rightly con- contemplating the fall does not in any way minimize the significance of sin on a, on a collective or on an individual scale. The point here is not, hey, we're all sinners, it's no big deal. The point is instead, hey, we're all sinners, and it's a really big deal. The Apostle Paul helps to flesh out the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of the fall throughout the book of Romans. Romans 6.23, something that some of you maybe memorized years ago as part of the Romans road. Romans 6.23 begins by saying, for the wages of sin is death death. Yeah, that's a pretty big consequence. Many would suggest it's the biggest possible consequence. Paul clarifies even further in Romans 5.12, drawing that consequence directly back to the first sin. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. He's connecting the dots for us. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam, Genesis 3, Death followed sin. By extension, death to all people because all people sinned. And you can't read these words and conclude, eh, we're all sinners, no big deal. And we know that death isn't the only consequence of our sin. That's the final and ultimate consequence. But in the meantime, we see sin doing its dirty work all around us. Rejection of God, relational separation from God, spiritual indifference and and lethargy and even more tangible earthly consequences too. We see a a litany of broken human relationships resulting from the seven deadly sins, pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and and sloth. And 
And then we've got a massive pile of ancillary sins beyond the big seven. Gossip and slander and unkindness and lies and manipulation and theft and fraud and infidelity and arrogance and narcissism and physical abuse and, and on and on. Each and every one of these sins has earthly and eternal consequences. Deep down, I think most of us probably know this to be true. Now, there's a question that someone might be asking now, a perfectly legitimate question. Doesn't Genesis 3 ultimately suggest that our sin nature isn't really our fault? It's Adam and Eve's fault, right? It's on them. They sinned and then passed along this sin nature to all of us. So why do we bear the consequences of sin when it's ultimately their fault? That doesn't seem fair. It's a huge question which Christians have wrestled with for ages and frankly, which non-Christians have used as ammunition to mock the faith. It's, it's not an absurd question. And we, we can only take a quick pass at it today, but I do want to take a quick pass at it. Think of it this way. On some level, I inherited my shape from my Oberholzer genes. We Oberholzers are a stocky stock raised for generations in Pennsylvania Dutch country on a diet of equal parts bacon, brown butter, and sugar cookies, we tend to be a wider variety of human. My dad always used to say that his sport coat size was 46 portly short. Now, I can't even confirm if that's a real size, having not bought many blazers in my lifetime. But, but even back when I was eight years old and I played sports in the backyard for six hours every day after school, running on average while playing those sports 14 miles per day, even then, I bought my Wrangler jeans in the husky section. Not the regular section, certainly not the slim section. My nickname in high school was, was Fat Kid, which morphed into Fatty, which ultimately became Puffy Arms. Man, it's brutal, isn't it? But I wasn't really bothered because I was an Oberhalter. That was my birthright. Now, here's the thing. When I'm deciding whether or not I'm going to eat the third donut, when I'm looking in the box and I'm saying things like, well, if I don't eat it, it will probably go stale. And that would be poor donut stewardship to let one go to waste. Even when I'm justifying eating a dessert, I know I don't even remotely need and definitely shouldn't have. Whose responsibility is it when I bite into that third, <clears throat> into that fourth, <clears throat> into that fifth donut? Is that my dad's fault? Is that my grandfather's fault? Or my great-great-great-great-grandfather, Klaus von Oberholzer, the chubby Bavarian pretzel maker who came to America in the 1700s in his husky lederhosen? <laughs> Actually, I don't know anything about my genealogy. I invented Klaus, but I think you get the point. When I irresponsibly take a bite of unhealthy food, the fault lies squarely and entirely and solely with me. Did my heritage make me in some way inclined in that direction? Sure, I, I suppose in some sense. But the actual decision, every decision that I make about my health, about my life, those are decisions that I make. For all the poor decisions I make, the responsibility is ultimately mine. And I bear the burden of the responsibility. I bear the consequences for those decisions. Uh, you know, there were consequences when I lied to my grandmother about my whereabouts late that Friday night. There was broken trust with my grandmother and with my parents, trust that I shattered in one foolish moment of selfishness. Now, that trust was rebuildable, but it took time to rebuild what I broke 
Me, not Adam, not Eve, not the serpent, what I broke. And the pain I inflicted on my grandmother, that was something I could never fully erase. Thankfully, over time, that trust was reestablished and the relational brokenness was mended. There was grace and, and forgiveness. But the echoes of Genesis 3 were very real, palpable to me, even if I didn't have the words to articulate it at the time. In, in a degree of pain and heartache that I placed upon others that reverberates in my soul these decades later. This has not been a pleasant memory for me to relive in preparing and sharing this message. The consequences of our sin always reflect the ultimate consequence of the fall in Genesis 3, which was fundamentally a separation from God. When Adam and Eve tried to do things their way, tried to aspire to be more than God created them to be, the relationship was broken. It was severed. I love how my good friend C.S. Lewis describes this in The Problem of Pain. Listen to this. They wanted some corner in the universe of which they could say to God, this is our business, not yours. But there is no such corner. Isn't that the legacy of the fall? That we navigate each and every day as temptation knocks on our doors, beckoning us to enter and betray the God who loves us beyond our comprehension. Isn't that what sin, no matter what variety we choose in any given moment, isn't that what sin is all about? God, this thing, this moment, this possession, this person, this relationship, this desire, this impulse, this is mine, not yours. And I'm gonna do whatever I want with it. And so we do. We reject God's way. We choose our own way. And we repeat the forever cycle that began in Genesis 3. Now, where does that leave us? When we allow it, reflecting on the fall and considering our place in that story leads us to a really healthy place. The fall leads to humility, confession, and repentance because none of us live outside the scope of the fall. Again, the Apostle Paul offers some striking insight found here in Romans 3, verses 10 to 12, quoting actually from the book of Psalms. There's no one righteous, not even one, there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, the fall is about these events long ago, but the significance of the fall matters to us right now. Our natural inclination when we talk about sin, when we talk about brokenness, about disrupting the creative order, we want to think about somebody else, anybody else. It's what Adam and Eve did. I saw this brilliant headline in an article this week from Babylon Bee, a, a Christian satire website, which said, during powerful sermon, woman deeply convicted that her husband needs to repent. <laughs> Again, this is satire, but it's funny because it hits so close to home. Isn't that the natural inclination of our hearts? To be painfully aware of somebody else's need, to be more humble and willing to confess and repent. Confession is the acknowledgement of sin. Repentance is feeling remorseful about our sin. These twin heart postures, only possible in a spirit of humility, are the gift we are given when we understand the personal implications of the fall of Genesis 3. Pastor Aaron has used that phrase several times over the past year or so, and it's really gripped me. Repentance is not a burden. It's a gift, the gift of repentance, because it's the place at which we rightly understand our position relative to God where we acknowledge and own and grieve the places where we don't get it right. In the Garden of Eden, when God asked, uh, hey, Adam, where are you? Was he asking because he had lost Adam? Because God was confused about Adam's whereabouts? When God asked, did you eat that apple I told you not to eat? 
Was God curious about what had happened while he was taking a nap? One commentator I was reading suggested that, no, 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 this inquiry was actually an invitation from God to Adam to receive the gift of confession. And after some obfuscation, Adam got there. He said, yeah, I ate it. And Eve said, yeah, I ate it. No, Adam also said it was her fault. And Eve said, well, it was the creature's fault. They weren't great confessions, but they were confessions. Acknowledgements of having sinned against God, which leads to the end game in all of this. God's response. God's response to the fall gives us hope. What follows the fall? Humanity scraping and scrambling and clawing their way back to God? No, 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 no. What follows the fall is God pursuing us while we were yet sinners. It began even in Genesis 3 when God did lay out the consequences of sin for Eve and Adam, pain in childbirth and relational tension between woman and man and, and toil and suffering in the work that would forever be part of humanity's calling. The consequences were, were right there. But out of that very imperfect confession of Adam and Eve, God immediately began the work of reordering the chaos that was wrought upon his perfectly ordered creation. That's the rest of the story of, of redemption and restoration the story of the rest of the Bible, the story of the rest of human history. God's beloved creation rejected him and his response should give us hope that immeasurably supersedes the pain of our confession and our repentance. Yes, in humility we confess and repent of our sinfulness, but as Christians, as beloved children of God, we do not wallow in our sinfulness because of the hope we have in God's response to our sinfulness. His response was to pursue us anyway. Genesis 3 tells us that sin is a guaranteed part of every one of our lives, no matter where or when we live on this earth. That's our chronological reality. Genesis 3 tells us that no human is exempt from this reality, no matter how gifted or talented or charismatic someone may be, dispelling our tendency to fall into heroic shock syndrome. Genesis 3 tells us that we, each one of us as individuals and all of us as humanity throughout the ages, we will bear some consequences for our sin. Genesis 3 tells us that there is only one appropriate response when we are given the gift of self-awareness. To see our sin, to understand our brokenness in contrast to the perfect and glorious holiness of the creator of the universe. Our only appropriate response is to receive the gift of confession in a spirit of humility, and then, and really only then, can we fully and truly and honestly relish in the absurd reality that God's response to all of this, all of the mess that we have collectively and individually created in our lives and in our society and all the world throughout all of time, that his response is to love us anyway. That's the promise of Genesis 3.15. It's subtle, but lean into this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the very first mention in scripture, while admittedly somewhat veiled, of the one who would come to save us. Whose heel would be struck by the evil one? But who would crush the head of the evil one? The Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, Jesus. 
Pastor Aaron mentioned an amazing resource last week and shared with us in his From the Pastor's Desk email two videos from the Bible Project, which provide a beautiful summary of the book of Genesis. If you haven't watched it yet, I strongly encourage you to do so this week. It's 15 minutes well spent. Here's how the Bible Project powerfully discusses God's response to the fall. This is an act of God's grace. The humans, they have just rebelled, and what does God do? He promises to rescue them. We live in a good world that we have turned bad. We've all chosen to define good and evil for ourselves, and so we all contribute to this world of broken relationships leading to conflict, violence, and ultimately death. But there is hope. God promised that one day a descendant would come, the wounded victor, who will defeat evil at its source, and so despite humanity's evil, God is determined to bless and rescue his world. And so the big question, of course, is what is God going to do? Well, we'll keep answering that question in the coming weeks. Read along with us in the next chunk of Genesis over this week in our Bible reading plan as we continue along. Can you guess what my, brand, my, what my grandmother did the next time I saw her in person after I lied to her. Hadn't thought about this until I was laying in bed late last night. She scowled and recoiled and turned away from me, right? No. No. My sweet, dear grandmother, my ma, she wrapped me in the tightest, warmest, longest hug we had ever had, which is saying something because that woman was a world-class hugger. But I never had a more heartfelt hug than that one. I broke her heart and her response was to embrace me to draw near. It was as if she were saying to me, child, you cannot outsin my love for you. Somehow, mysteriously and miraculously, our God loves us deeper and richer and more profoundly and more enthusiastically and more immeasurably than my grandmother loved me in that moment. Friends, hear this. You cannot outsin God's love for you. Rest in that great hope today. As we close, I'd, I'd simply invite you to reflect. As we pray, as we sing, as we depart, reflect in that spirit of humility. Receive the gift of confession and repentance. You can come forward and receive that in this space. You can receive it in your seat. You can receive it in the car on the way home. But receive that gift of confession and repentance in that spirit of humility. But do so with hope in the God who is determined to bless and rescue us so that he might bless and rescue his world. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we come with thankful hearts with humble hearts. We thank you for the gift of your word, for your willingness to share this story, this hard story filled with ugliness, that it might inform our understanding of you and your great immeasurable love for us. 
We come acknowledging that we are a broken people, broken vessels. (laughs) And yet, Lord, you love us anyway. You always have, you always will. In that space of, of humility, as we confess, as we repent, would you meet us in that place as I know you love to do and invite us into your warm embrace? Might we receive that gift and then would we share it so that others might receive it as well? Lord, we thank you for all of this and we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.